Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Oof. What an exhausting week in so many ways, both politically and otherwise. We'll talk about that. Uh, we've got quite, we've got quite a cracking show today. It's very eclectic and very packed because there's quite a lot going on at the moment. Uh, so today, what we're talking about, I thought this was quite an interesting thing to talk about. Um, it's this so-called progressive alliance thing, which kind of occasionally does the rounds. Basically, it's this idea that um purportedly anti-conservative parties should form some sort of electoral pact together in order to get rid of the conservative party and one of the i guess the kind of founding principles of it is that first past the post isn't a fair system and because of geographical spread and so on the conservatives can win whopping big majorities um even though they win a minority of the vote they're quite a large minority of the vote but nonetheless 55 percent of people didn't vote for them and, and yet they end up with an 80-seat majority. So people go, well, hold on a minute. What happens if the so-called, important point, progressive parties get together, uh, form packs on the basis of where one party's stronger, the others step aside to give them a free run? There's lots of arguments against that. We've got a great debate today between two people on the left who have very different takes on this. Uh, one argument would be, are you really calling the Liberal Democrats progressive? Uh, the other is this would completely politically emasculate the Labour Party and its guiding uh, political mission. And other basic point is, some would argue, it smacks of desperation. It's the sort of argument you hear floated around when Labour's not doing very well. So then it becomes this crutch to try and game a system uh, under which it, it has to win. Because some people would say first past the post, not very fair, is it? That's the electoral system. Stuck with it. Labour has to somehow form a government through that system, even if you support changing the electoral system. Uh, there's lots of arguments uh, which we're going to go into about it. But it is important to have it out because people are talking about it. The whole point of this is we can have a little discussion about things which are being discussed on the left, not least given we often, in normal times, we're having these big pack meetings to discuss it and we can't do that. So we're just yelling at each other on social media on Twitter.com. So why not do it on YouTube instead? Um, we've got a lot to talk about, as I said today. So we're going to be joined by, first of all, uh, Carolyn Culver from the Green Party, who stood in that seat which uh, and, and beat the Labour candidate. We're joined by David Broder from Jacobin, who is against the so-called Progressive Alliance and wrote an article for Jacobin setting out the reasons why. Do look it up. And Paul Sweeney, who's the Labour MSP for Glasgow region, who is very much for a so-called progressive alliance. We're also talking today with the incredible mother of Osseen Brown, who is a 22-year-old uh, autistic man who has lived in this country virtually all his life and uh, was due to be deported to Jamaica, where uh, he left at the age, uh, very, very small age. And they had a big campaign for justice and they won. So we're going to talk to his mother about what that means, what it represents, how she's feeling, obviously, and 
her campaign was absolutely incredible. I was proud to support it myself. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about the Labour Party. Now, a bit of housekeeping, as ever, if you're watching live, do click through to YouTube, which I keep saying, but most of you don't listen to me. But if you if you do want to help the show, if you click through to the YouTube link, that does help and press like and because uh, that helps the algorithm. More people will go on to watch it. Most people watch after the show and press subscribe. That would really help as well um, because you'll get these videos just pinging up on your phone without me having to whinge on Twitter about it. Um, if you want to support the show, uh, we've got a brilliant documentary. I'll come on to that. Um, and I say brilliant documentary. People are, oh, nice to write your reviews there in. Obviously, it's the brilliant videographer, Jack Barraclough, who does those videos. And you make it happen through patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Uh, and uh, so do support us on that if you can. That allows us to pay union wages to our team to do those sorts of amazing documentaries. This is in Batley and Spen, the by-election, which is due to take place um, in a week and a half. And it is quite... We'll talk about this quite the by-election. You can also support the show using Super Chat um, on YouTube. So you have to come through to YouTube if you want to ask questions to the guest. And then just uh, you can support the show that way, ask a question, and I will read out everyone's names at the end of the show. So before we begin, I do... This Batley and Spen uh, documentary is quite the roller coaster. We talked to uh, George Galloway, who's standing, uh, one of the most, of course, controversial politicians in the country, to Andy Burnham, to the local Labour candidate, Kim uh, Ledbetter. Uh, we speak to people on the ground. And one of the big parts of this story is the perennial fatal problem of the Labour Party of taking its existing voters for granted. 86% of Muslims voted for the Labour Party in 2019. A large chunk of the Labour vote in Batley and Spen are Muslim voters who overwhelmingly voted for the local Labour candidate uh, back in 2019, Tracy Rabin, who stood down now because she's now become a Labour mayor. Um, and I have to say, the anger and fury that I met amongst Labour Muslim voters was astonishing. Let's just see, though, a little clip to give you just to, just to whet your appetite, because this documentary, if you're... It depends when you're watching this or listening to it or on the podcast as ever as well. Oh, that's the other thing. Do, of course, listen on the podcast, subscribe. Uh, a big chunk of the audience, of course, is, is the podcast. But uh, I want to give you a flavour of this documentary out this Monday or in the past. So let's have a look look at this clip. Journalist, we're just here just for the day. You're, you're, so you used to be Labour. Yeah, I'm converting into... I am going to go what you call with George now because I want the roads. I'm a cabbie. And I'm being a taxi driver, it's just so infuriating to see all the time the roads are in such a state that nobody's doing nothing about it. So you're actually voting for potholes? Yeah, potholes, yeah. Do you think George Galloway as an MP will leak? So yeah, sorry. Do you, why, do you think, why do you think George Galloway will sort out the potholes? Well, I'm his man of his word. How, but he's well, in... I mean, I have seen him over the years that what he says, he, he lives up to it. George, you are you going to start out the potholes? Because he wants you to... Um, how? If, if how I, as a Member of Parliament? Well, I'm, I'll fill them in myself if I have to. Uh, there's roads here that are worse than the roads in India and Pakistan. They're I'm not joking. <laughs> but as, an, as a Member of Parliament, he wouldn't be able to fix that. Accountability no, and scrutiny. But you can put our voice ahead, please. <laughs> OK. If you can put the voice ahead for us. But there's a zebra crossing down there that is so faded, no one can any longer see it. I'm going to paint it myself. <laughs> Genuinely? Yeah. Wow. Appreciate you are busy with Ah, the zebra. Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, you will blimey. see me paint that. Are I... you actually going to put that? That is a George Galloway promise. I'm going to paint that. Promise. It's actually wow. the only 
election promise I've made, uh, <laughs> other than to fight for people. Well, when he thought you could do it today, come on. No, I can't. Get painting. Because I'm not the MP, but if I'm the MP, you'll see me on my hands and knees with a broad brush. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite good at the broad brush. Slightly surreal experience, I'm not going to lie. Um... There you go. He's promising to paint a zebra crossing. Now, obviously, the documentary goes into slightly more profound issues than George Galloway promising to paint a zebra crossing, but it does look at the huge uh, groundswell of disillusionment there and what that potentially means for Labour. Labour councillors there uh, are not uh, optimistic about keeping that seat and report entire streets where 90% of people voted Labour at the last election who are telling canvassers to go F themselves and the various other not very happy expressions. Um, now, we're going to talk about that at the end of the show as well about Labour Party, because some people think my tweets are responsible for the Labour Party's plight rather than the people running the Labour Party. Now, we're going to talk now to uh, Caroline Culver, from the, who is a Green Party candidate, uh, was a Green Party candidate, sorry, for Chesham and Amersham. Before I introduce her, let's just have a little look at the clip from the Liberal Democrat candidate, Sarah Green, not Sarah from the Green, Sarah Green. Uh, her victory speech. Tonight, the voice of Chesham and Amersham is unmistakable. Together, we have said, enough is enough, we will be heard, and this government will listen. This campaign has shown that no matter where you live, or how supposedly safe a constituency may appear to be, if you want a Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament, you can have a Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament. We need that off ITV. Um, so, Caroline, Caroline, I think I called you Caroline again. I think I, when I, before we spoke, I knew to call you Caroline. I think I called you Caroline again. So let me make it clear. You're called Caroline. Very obviously, that's your name. We can read it. It's great to see you. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you, Owen. Um, thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, it's great to have you on. Um, firstly, uh, well done. You, you, you were, it, it should be said, uh, did better than the Labour Party did. The Labour Party got about as many votes as it's got members in the constituency, got the sort of vote you'd expect from, to be honest, the monster raving loony party. It was less than 2%. Can you just firstly just tell us a little bit about the constituency? Because it's fair to say it's quite a leafy, affluent constituency, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I have spent a lot of time in that constituency over the last year on the Stop HS2 campaign. So there's a neighbouring wood called Jones Hill Wood, much of which has now been cut down, unfortunately, which I and other activists have been trying to save. So for us, this campaign was very much about an extension of that Stop HS2 campaign, and it affects people across the whole constituency. So the line will run right through the heart of the constituency from one side to the other. It's causing lots of uh, road congestion, we now fear that it's going to affect the drinking water supply because there is drilling through the chalk aquifer. And a Green Party member from Hillingdon recently took um, HS2 to a tribunal and they've now had to release those documents, which show that there is a risk. Um, people don't like the loss of ancient woodland. And also it's um, a matter of social injustice. There are many landowners there who have lost homes or lost land and have still not been compensated many months later. So for us, it's a case of environmental and social justice. And that concern resonates across the entire constituency. So, Caroline, in this election, um, 
or in the aftermath, lots of people have said, well, look, this is a so-called progressive alliance in action because this was a very safe conservative seat. They won it by a whopping big margin. Um, what I'm, I think is quite interesting is how the Lib Dems behaved in this by-election. So do you want to tell us, you know, because people are talking about the so-called progressive alliance, from a Green Party perspective, how do you sum up the Liberal Democrat campaign? Sure. Well, Layla Moran MP met with my campaign manager and agent about five weeks ago and asked us to stand aside. And we said no, because we considered it unconscionable that you could have a parliamentary by-election in this constituency, which is so affected by HS2, and not have an anti-HS2 candidate. She said to us, HS2 is not an issue in this constituency. So I can either assume that the local Liberal Democrats were not talking to people on the ground or they had not conveyed to their national leadership that HS2 was a problem. So we said, no, we're going to go ahead. We're going to fight this because people need to have an anti-HS2 candidate that they can support. So the Liberal Democrats came flying out of the traps and they talked about the government's planning proposals quite rightly and said that they were wrong. And they didn't mention HS2 until about a week to 10 days ago. And then in their literature, they started saying the Conservatives have not listened to us and the local community's concerns about HS2. Now, the reality is all of the Liberal Democrat MPs in the House of Commons, when phase one of HS2 was voted through, all of them voted for HS2. Even some Conservatives and Labour voted against it. And then when we could see the damage that was being done to the Chilterns, there was a vote on phase 2A of HS2, which goes from Birmingham to Manchester. And with that vote, two Liberal Democrat MPs voted for it. And the rest of them, including Leila Moran, didn't even turn up for the vote. Their national party policy remains pro-HS2. So I'm afraid to say this is another example of the Liberal Democrats flip-flopping. Are they for HS2 or are they against HS2? Now, if you look at social media, a lot of local people are celebrating the fact they've got rid of a Conservative and they now have an anti-HS2 MP. That's the way they're looking at it. They voted for her because they thought she was anti-HS2. So she now needs to deliver on that. She needs to go and meet the landowners who haven't been compensated. She needs to go and visit the woods that have been cut down. She needs to do something about the tunnelling through the aquifer and the impact that that is going to have on the local rivers and the local drinking supply. And if she does that, I will be the first to congratulate her. But having been involved in politics for 25 years, I don't have overwhelming confidence that they will actually deliver on what they've said. I mean, this is a perennial problem, isn't it, with the Liberal Democrats, if we're going to be honest, which is they often campaign. I mean, the one thing you'll find that unites Conservative and Labour campaigners, indeed Green Party campaigners for that matter, is a frustration at the cynicism of a lot of Liberal Democrat campaigning. In that in some council elections, for example, they'll campaign against something in one part of the borough and then campaign for it in another part of the borough, depending on what they think is popular. I mean, that's why they're seen as by-election kings, by the way, because they do, as you know, they do stick on to local issues in, 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 in the way they've done here and make themselves out to be the local voice campaigners and all the rest of it. But they're, they're very cynical campaigners, aren't they? They are. They're, they're brilliant campaigners. In a by-election, they can mobilise a lot of people on the ground. They had hundreds, if not thousands of people out. And some of the local Liberal Democrats who I know, because I'm a Green Party councillor in West Berkshire, have actually confessed to me that they know it will not be possible to run a campaign like this during a normal general election. But during a by-election, they can throw everything at it. 
Um, but I would say if they believe in a progressive alliance, really and truly, they ought to be standing aside for Labour in Batley and Spen. And I think that would be a true measure of whether or not they believe in a progressive alliance. Finally, why do you think Labour did so badly? Because it is true, obviously, that clearly tactical voting was overwhelmingly what was going on there. But you got more votes than the Labour candidate. So what? why? We fought really, really hard on this. Um, we put out seven pieces of literature targeted at people about HS2, about other issues like the planning legislation, about COVID recovery, etc. And it's because we fought so hard that we got the percentage we did. If we'd stood a paper candidate, we probably would have been decimated, to be honest. Um, as far as I'm aware, the South East Labour Party put a message out to all their members a couple of days before nominations opened for this by-election and said, who wants to stand? So I don't think they ever really took it seriously. Their candidate you know, stood up to the plate and she did a good job. But we only saw two pieces of literature. So they never really took this campaign seriously at all. Um, I don't know why. I can speculate that maybe it's because Labour want to focus on Batley and Spen. Um, I don't know how big and active the Labour Party is in Cheshire and Amersham. Um, so, you know, I congratulate Natasha. But um, I think by her own admission, she would probably say they, they didn't make a big deal of the campaign. Caroline, thank you so much uh, for joining us and giving us a little masterclass. <laughs> for those who don't know how uh, Liberal Democrats campaign, this is pretty, frankly, pretty standard, if we're going to be honest. But really, really appreciate it and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you, Owen. I just want to say the campaign against HS2 continues. There's all sorts of things happening further up the line now. And we're absolutely determined we're going to stop this. If we can't stop phase one, we want to stop phase 2A and, and phase 2B. And as far as we in the Green Party are concerned, that is what matters. It's not the elections. It's fighting these damaging, ecological, disastrous projects. Great. Very well Thanks flowed. Going. Thank Cheers, you. Cheers, Take care. Have a lovely day. So, Progressive Alliance, let us talk to our two heavyweight debaters on this particular issue. We have David Broder, who is the York correspondent for Jacobin, amongst many other things, and Paul, Paul Sweeney, who is the Labour MSP, that's the member of the Scottish Parliament uh, for Glasgow region, and was a Labour MP, of course, uh, until the 2019 disaster. Great to see you both. Hi there. Good to see you. We're going to start just just a little quick clip from John Curtis. He's Britain's preeminent pathologist. Pathologist, I said it right, it's fine. Uh, let's have a look what he said. How do you read this result? We're hearing a lot of claims, obviously, from the Lib Dems. What about you? What does it say to you? I think the honest truth is that this was a by-election that the Liberal Democrats always had a good chance of winning, and certainly a by-election that the Liberal Democrats badly needed to win. Uh, this is a very middle class, degree heavy, remain voting constituency uh, just outside of London. This is precisely the kind of constituency in which the Conservatives performed relatively badly in 2019, and in many of which the Liberal Democrats performed relatively well, most notably gaining St Albans, but also not being that far behind in the Foreign Secretary's constituency of Isha and Walton uh, not being very far behind in Wimbledon. Um, so this was uh, a constituency in which the Liberal Democrats were unusually well placed in the wake of uh, the pursuit of Brexit, a pursuit of Brexit that means that the Conservative Party has indeed been doing relatively well in constituencies, working class, leave voting constituencies 
in the north of England and in the Midlands as uh, exemplified by the outcome of the Hartlepool by-election just a few weeks ago. But the converse of that has always been that in Remain voting middle-class seats in the south of England, the Conservative coalition has been weakened to some degree in the wake of Brexit. And Liberal Democrats, frankly, are the party that in many instances are best placed to profit from that. And that's what they've managed to do in Cheshire and Amersham. So, Paul, let's, let's start with you as someone who supports um, a progressive alliance. Um, I mean, partly before link on to what John Curtis just said, the argument partly is very straightforward. The Lib Dems are not progressive. They propped up the coalition government of 2010 to 2015. They just prop it up. They were integral to it. They introduced huge amounts of cuts and austerity. That paved the way for the calamity we see socially, but also politically. That's enveloped this country for the last few years. Everything from the bedroom tax, decimation of the welfare state, uh, public services. But what links to John Curtis there is they have a so-called blue wall strategy. So they're going for middle class, socially liberal, remain conservative seats, but they're they're well off constituents and they don't want their taxes to go up. So by definition, the Lib Dems have to oppose, for example, increases to tax to those voters. So they wouldn't be able to prop up a Labour government if if those voters think that a Labour government that's remotely progressive in any shape or form is likely, then those voters will go, I don't like Brexit or Boris Johnson, but I prefer him in power than even a mild Labour government that might increase my taxes. I don't think it's necessarily true that that's, uh, you know, that they can map across behaviours in that sense, because, you know, Labour MPs represent similar demographics uh, and they certainly were people who voted in large numbers for a progressive policy agenda. I agree with you. There is a, a significant uh, health warning over the Liberal Democrats, and you know, the, you know, the, the coalition's notorious reputation still looms large in the minds of many. Um, but we have to remember that the Liberal Democrats emerged out of a merger between the old Liberal Party and the SDP, which emanated from the, the Labour Party. And you know, certainly the experience in Scotland of a, of a coalition with the Liberal Democrats between 1999 and 2007 was a largely successful one and delivered significant improvements uh, in socialist policy, social democratic policy um, in, in Scotland over that period. So you know, it's not, it doesn't hold true that it would necessarily mean a, a, a compromise in that sense politically. But I think the fundamental point for me is that it comes down to the electoral system. It's electoral reality we need to face up to now. Um, and that the next election will hinge upon this strategy. Um, so even if Labour achieves its high watermark of 43% of the vote that it got in 1997, it would only deliver a majority of four seats under the current system, and it would be too short of a majority under the boundary revisions currently in train. So even under the previous system, we're kind of prisoners of our own history that we think that we just go through the motions of achieving 97 again, that somehow we'll be delivered into a government with a stonky majority. It's not achievable under the current system. The Conservatives have an inbuilt advantage in that they had a 12% advantage at the last election where they got 43% of the vote, but they got 56% of the seats. Um, it's not a fair system. First past the post is undemocratic, uh, and it is only continuing to disadvantage Labour. And certainly, even though a majority of the country votes for progressive parties generally and for progressive agendas, they're getting Tory governments. And that is starting to actually render the fabric of the UK itself. Um, so the, the actual integrity of the country is now under threat. So we need to seriously consider how we move forward practically to deliver a Labour government. Labour, in its 121 years of existence, has only been in government for around a quarter of that time. It's been a Tory century and a Tory century perpetuated by the first-past-the-post electoral system. 
David, electoral system means very unlikely a Labour government's possible or viable. Boundary review will make that more likely. And the Labour Lib Dem coalition in Scotland did good things and certainly preferable to what we have now. Um, well, I think the, the, the problem for me is is what, um, what electorate, what social base, what coalition of groups in British society is going to get a majority government. And I think the problem with the Progressive Alliance proposal is that it basically assumes we can add up together all of the people who vote for Labour, uh, maybe SNP, Greens, Lib Dems, and uh, those people would all vote in the right way and then we'll get a majority and implement um, proportional representation. Um, I think, firstly, uh, is a problem just with the arithmetic of that. Um, um, Sean uh, Lawson published an article in favour of a progressive alliance five days after the last general election, uh, you know, with the previous boundaries, which said that if uh, all of the Lib Dem and Labour and so on voters had all voted tactically, then that would have produced a Tory majority of 12. Um, so that's even if we could assume that all Lib Dems prefer Labour to Tory and, and this kind of thing, which I think just isn't true. Um, and I think the, 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 the reason, um, you know, I wrote uh, an article the other day uh, for Jacobin about um, what Labour needs to do in terms of um, building itself, building a, a, a working class uh, coalition. Uh, and I think the, the thing is, we do have experience of this. Uh, in 2017, before the election, everyone said all of the Brexit voters would more or less automatically transfer uh, to the Tories, whereas the Remain vote would split across lots of parties, and then we were doomed to a terrible defeat. And we had all these arguments that uh, the voters are more divided, divided by Brexit or by culture or identity or so on uh, than by old class divides. Um, but what we actually saw in the election is that Labour succeeded in putting together um, younger urban um, voters, often uh, previous non-voters, um, but and that was an important part of the boost in our vote. But at the same time, uh, we converted a surprisingly large amount of former UKIP voters, previous Labour to UKIP switchers. Uh, maybe about one in four, one in three of those came back to Labour in 2017. And I think uh, my problem with the Progressive Alliance strategy is it kind of assumes that uh, our break with the kind of old ex-industrial, etc., working class, uh, homeowners and so on, uh, it kind of takes that for, for granted. Um, and I think that just doesn't have to be the case. And, you know, we can even see um, seats where the change in class composition uh, is also helping Labour to make breakthroughs where it never has before. Uh, for, for example, I'm from Hampshire. In um, 2010, 2015, uh, um, uh, Labour was in third place, scoring you know, 10, 13%. And uh, the Lib Dems won in 2010, the Toys in 2015, and then 2017, uh, Labour won. And if we'd had a progressive alliance with the Lib Dems, uh, that uh, couldn't have happened. Um, so I think, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm mainly a 
a historian of uh, Italy and write about European politics, as you said, Owen. And in lots of places, we've seen old working class parties, their, their core vote has collapsed and they've not been able to uh, replace it. And in Britain, we have a, still have a stronger position because the institutional and electoral base of the Labour Party is still still standing, still something to build on. Uh, you know, under Keir Starmer's leadership, we've seen a continuation of the historic decline of its working class support. Uh, both uh, older and voters going to the Tories and younger voters going to the Greens and so on. Uh, and of course, a lot of people not voting anymore. And I think that the decisive thing we need to focus on in terms of building an alliance, building a coalition of support, is winning back people who don't think politics can change anything, people who don't uh, trust the parties, people who uh, are appealed to by the kind of left populist agenda uh, that, that Corbyn uh, put forward. Um, so, um, and I think, you know, frankly, we're having this discussion at a time when you know, Keir Starmer's leadership is imperiled. And I think, uh, I certainly hope the next leadership contest isn't defined by, you know, who would be best as Labour leader to suit the Lib Dems or who they would be willing to go into alliance with. Uh, I think the most important thing for Labour is to rebuild itself as a party that that uses the language of class that and uses that to uh, unite a broad social majority behind it. Uh, I think PR is is fine in principle, but uh, I think to, you know to to um, I, I think basically the, the progressive alliance wouldn't even uh, be able to lift us to power. I mean that's just not the kind of thing that mobilizes voters. So Paul, I mean partly on that, inevitably a, coal- a not a coalition, some sort of pact with the Liberal Democrats would dilute the sort of populist class based politics that could actually win large sections of the population as. 2017 showed and also I suppose to link to that you know obviously Joe Swinson ran a campaign which was more against Jeremy Corbyn than it was against Boris Johnson that's not a new phenomenon because the Liberal Democrats argued that if Ed Miliband wasn't Labour leader then they would consider supporting Labour they also said that about Gordon Brown I mean there never seems to be an acceptable Labour leader for the Liberal Democrats well, that's something we need to, to hammer out very frankly with them. And I don't think it involves a compromise uh, on our political agenda. And I, I very much agree with um, what was said about the need for a, a sound political economy and analysis that addresses the fundamentals of economic alienation faced by working class communities across the United Kingdom. It's something that's fundamental to my political mission in the Labour and Cooperative Parties, um, which in itself is an electoral coalition that's been around since um, since 1927. So I think we need to um, to look at how we can deliver that powerful message that has a sound fundamental analysis on, on the political economy of our country and how to address exploitation, absolutely. But it doesn't get away from the fact that even if you look at the, those heady days of, of 2017 when we confounded expectations, Labour won 30% of the vote to the Tories 37%. Um, it's still far adrift of what we need. You know, Even on 43%, which we achieved, we wouldn't be getting a majority. Um, so we need to look at how we, we actually essentially game the system, a game the first-past-the-post system, which is rigged against uh, against progressive voices to overcome it in, in one overwhelming strategy, which doesn't involve political compromises necessarily. It could involve simply uh, a non-aggression pact to deliver a progressive majority of seats uh, in the House of Commons 
change the, the voting system immediately through legislation and then um, dissolve parliament into a general election under the new system. That that might be just what's necessary to deliver it. Um, it might not require an ongoing governance um, arrangement that uh, re requires that sort of compromise. Um, so I would be open to that idea. If you look at 2017, um, under certain permutations and marginal seats, Labour was about 2,227 votes away from uh, wiping out the Tory majority altogether or wiping out their situation as the largest party with um, 321 seats amongst the SNP Liberal Democrats uh, and the Green. Um, we could have actually potentially have formed a working majority. So even in that situation, that context, we were talking about Corbynism as a project working with those parties to deliver a workable um, Labour-led government in power. You know, so it's, it's a bit fascist to say that, you know, in 2017, we could have struck forward and, and won that election outright. I don't think that was achievable under those circumstances. I think what we failed to understand is 2015 was a fundamental realignment. The coalition destroyed the Liberal Democrats. It collapsed their situation as a parliamentary party. And we also saw the rise of the SNP in Scotland. And of course, the situation of distortion under fast past the post is even more egregious in Scotland. The SNP have never won a majority of the popular vote in Scotland. They've got about 45% of the vote at the last election. That delivered them 81% of the seats. Okay, so even in that situation, you're seeing the constitutionalist elements of the UK being pulled apart in a, in a sort of accelerated and uh, even, uh, even more accentuated by first past the post. And that's not healthy for our democracy. So we need to see, you know, I'm not just saying that, you know, had we had single transferable vote, I'd still be an MP, which I would have been, and we'd had probably two or three other Glasgow Labour MPs. But, you know, it's not simply self-interest. It's about the fact that our country is being grossly distorted by the current electoral system. It threatens to pull the country apart altogether. Um, so we need to think about this actually as an existential crisis for the UK as much as it is for the Labour Party. I mean, David, on that, one of the arguments made in favour of a so-called progressive alliance is that it would simply be on one issue, which is to change the electoral system. So all parties would agree, basically, we'll have a referendum on proportional representation of some description. Um, and that would be the, the you know, that would be the end goal. And then each political party could stand, I mean, the Labour Party would then split into two different parties, I would imagine, probably uh, one more happy with the Lib Dems. But, I mean, Chris Jarvis also asked, um, when talking about progressive alliances, we often talk about candidates standing down. Should we not instead be talking about a 1997-style non-aggression agreement that prioritises resources in the most winnable seats? So rather than some sort of formal arrangement, the Labour would just go, well, we're not going to bother really campaigning against Caroline Lucas. We're not really going to bother campaigning in Amersham and Chesham. Uh, but don't try and campaign against us in marginal Labour and Tory seats. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Well, uh, in reality, um, that exists to some extent already. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in a very solidly uh, Tory seat where Labour did did nothing, and you know, I think uh, in, in you know, in reality, uh, I think even Ed Davey said that they're not, you know, going uh, um, full tilt to try and win Batley and spend for the Lib Dems because they're going to get nowhere. So, you know, obviously, any party um, should prioritise its resources. But you know, as I said earlier, I mean. I mean, there are plenty of seats where Labour came third in 2010 and 2015 uh, that we won in 2017. So um, I think the problem is, is is taking the existing, and yeah, we even saw in the 2019 election, right, the, the, the problem of divvying up the seats is, is certainly difficult. And, uh, you know, I think part of the problem with that as well is um, would, um, would the Lib Dems agree to support any candidate who had solid socialist and anti-imperialist? politics i think not uh, if you look at um zara sultana's uh, the coventry south you know one response you know she uh, very narrowly won the election in 2019 but uh and you know if you look at the lib dem scored six or seven percent or something so you know having that added on would um certainly have have helped her but on the other hand there's simply no chance that they would support her uh, lend their support to a candidate uh, as good as her. And I think that the problem of the Progressive Alliance, the way it's kind of presented and talked about, is it presumes uh, a kind of, um, that we can just kind of unite on the lowest common denominator and, and then have all our other differences. Whereas in reality, uh, the, you know, the, the, the contradictions within uh, the, the, those parties and, and, and the, the, you know, especially over things like Scottish independence, I, I don't actually know what, what Paul's, uh, attitude towards is to, to Labour standing aside for the SNP. Uh, even in 2015, we saw the way in which the, the sort of spectre of a uh, Labour-SNP uh, alliance uh, really undermined uh, uh, Ed Miliband in, in England. Um, but I mean, I, I think the problem with the um, the idea of it being a, a, a sort of single issue, I mean, we've already seen this in practice because uh, in the dying days of Theresa May's government, um, there was plenty of talk of the idea of a, um, a so-called national unity government or effectively a, an alliance of the Remain parties uh, in order to install a temporary government, perhaps led by John Burke or someone which would delay or, or probably cancel uh, Brexit, organise a second referendum or whatever. And the Liberal Democrats were absolutely insistent that they would not agree to lead to, sorry, to support any government led by uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, even if just for that basis, just to, to uh, revoke Article 50 and call a general election. And I think that that was an illustration of the kind of pressure that would be brought to bear on the Labour Party by the Lib Dems and the way it would help the right wing of the Labour Party uh, ensure their, their, um, their, their dominance and their marginalisation of of the left, of socialist ideas, and so on. Um, I mean, we've seen under Keir Starmer's leadership, uh, the, the although he was elected 
sort of supposedly as you know a statesman-like figure who'd present uh, Corbyn's policies in a more um, you know in a way able to appeal to a broader array of voters and so on. But the reality of that has just been a total silencing of uh, the the Corbyn agenda. Of course, Corbyn himself being uh, excluded from the party or you know, permanently suspended. Let's say uh, thousands of socialists expelled. Um, the left completely excluded from uh, the cabinet, and uh, you know I think when we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying the Lib Dems are bad, so therefore we could never make any kind of deal with them. You know, if Corbyn had won a few thousand more votes in 2017, and they had supported his government, you know, unlikely, but it would have been worth seeking their support. What what I'm questioning is the idea of a pre-electoral pact in which we pick our candidates and. Uh, tailor our policy platform to suit other parties, which, as well as being very unpopular, uh, also promote an agenda very likely to to, to split our own uh, base. So, I mean, I think there is going to be a Labour leadership election before uh, 2024. And I think that what we need to be focusing on, what we need to be doing, is reconnecting with working class voters. Uh, I think that that's you know, I think that the idea of a progressive alliance uh, projects a certain idea of what the Labour Party should be and who it should be, who it should appeal to. Um, whereas I think uh, we need uh, instead to to build a, a coalition which certainly has progressive values, certainly stands up for socially liberal ideas. Uh, if you think, of course, of um, you know, I think that the 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 Lib Dems aren't just a free marketeer. Party, but that also has a socially illiberal effects. If you think, you know, when the Lib Dems were in government last time, they uh, they um, made people pay to go to employment tribunals. They cut legal aid, uh, and that obviously had a massive effect on you know women suffering, uh, you know, sexual harassment, uh, and you know we could come up with any number of things. But I think the 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 progressive coalition has to be built around being able to mobilise people who don't vote, people who uh, were inspired by Labour in 2017. I'll just finish by, by correcting uh, Paul on one point. Uh, you said we, we lost by 30 points to 37, but that was in 2015. In 2017, we got 40% of the vote. So, you know, and as I said earlier, I mean, we did that totally countering the idea that the electorate is now just split along cultural lines or Brexit or something like that. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's a real danger that that could happen uh, and that, you know, I think a progressive alliance risks are pushing us further along that path. So, Paul, I mean, just in terms of addressing that point about, I mean, where do you stand on the idea, for example, that a progressive alliance would mean Labour essentially allowing the Liberal Democrats to to dictate, or not dictate, but influence its policy programme, watering down Labour's policy programme. So rather than Labour members and the Labour movement deciding Labour's policy platform, the Lib Dems would essentially de facto become part of it. And the other is, I suppose that point David made about the the SNP, because a lot of what you've said already, you've pointed out as, as, as politically makes sense in your case in, in lots of ways, which is in Scotland, obviously the party of government and Scottish National Party, the arch foes, of the Labour Party, you don't regard the SNP as progressive as part of any progressive alliance. But the SNP, they support, you know, they, they there's no tuition fees. They support the abolition of tuition fees up there. 
They have a more progressive tax system. They did oppose further changes to that, but it is more progressive than the rest of the country. Uh, they, uh, they, for example, uh, they have you know no prescription charges. Like they have done things which we would associate as part of a social democratic project. Certainly, infinitely more progressive than anything the Conservatives are doing, and yet. Uh, you wouldn't support, for example, if there was a threat between the SNP and the Conservatives, would you want Labour to stand aside or or not campaign against the SNP? Because the SNP, in terms of their domestic policies, are, relative to the Conservatives, a progressive party. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't accept the point that it's mutually exclusive with regards to the Liberal Democrats, that they can, that it would somehow stymie our, our ability to put forward a, a socialist um, programme for the country. I don't think that's true. And I, sorry, I, I accept that point about um, 2017, it was 40 to 42% um, gap, but it still delivered the Tories a 55-seat advantage. So I think that tells you again that first past the post doesn't work for the Labour Party. Um, so we need to seriously question how we're going to ever deliver a Labour government if we're not willing to accept some means of cooperating uh, with other parties that are generally anti-conservative, uh, anti-conservative agenda, however much they might disagree with Labour on the certain policies. How do we actually have one powerful movement to remove the Tory scourge from government? Uh, that's got to be our fundamental agenda. The Labour Party was founded and constructed as a, a progressive alliance with the, the view of advancing the working class interest in parliamentary politics, but ultimately to, you know, its implicit mission is to, to remove conservatives from power uh, and to deliver a labouring government. Um, and I think we have to look at how we best achieve that under the current system with a view towards changing it to a progressive, uh, proportional representative system that reflects the will of the country. Um, with regards to the SNP, yeah, I mean, you cited some achievements there, such as the abolition of tuition fees uh, and prescription charges, both of which were delivered by Labour and the Liberal Democrats in, in government. Labour abolished up uh, upfront tuition fees and also um, made over 90% of prescriptions free to Scots. So, you know, the SNP talk a good game when it comes to claiming the, the achievements, actually, of the previous Labour administration uh, in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, funnily enough. Um, I think fundamentally the, the project of Scottish independence, though many people on the left and many progressives agree with it, um, I'm firmly of the view that it's, it's anti-socialist um, because it will deliver an economic environment which will be basically open the country up to neoliberal agendas and will cut public spending by between 20 to 40 percent immediately. So it's hardly progressive. Um, that aside, I think the SNP support a lot of um, Labour policies, support the general mission of the Labour Party in terms of its agenda economically and socially. So there is a deal to be done there in terms of the actual day-to-day -day governance of the country. Um, I don't think it necessarily requires some sort of coalition. I think the, uh, the SNP would vote for much of Labour policy simply because if they didn't and undermine the Labour government, as I've said before, when this was speculated about in 2017 to 2019, they would pay the price at the polls because many Labour voters shifted to vote for the SNP. What's quite interesting about how voters behave in that point that was made about, you know, we can't expect voters to be automatons, so simply, you know, automatically be computed to vote a certain way. Agreed. But we can actually see how generally aligned voters are in terms of their values and how that's likely to work in the, in the context of a broader coalition against the Conservative Party to deliver a one full swoop against them and then actually be able to bring in a fairer voting system. I think that's a compelling argument to make and it can be done in concert with Labour's mission for um, you know improvement of working class communities and investment in working class communities, restoring wealth to working class communities. That can certainly be something that's completely compatible. Um, I think if you look at the SNP, for example, and I see like Sterling, let's take Sterling. 
um, Labour right up until 2015. Then the SNP, sorry, the, the, the SNP won it in 2015. Then they lost it to the Conservative Party in 2017. Um, and then actually what you saw in that seat was in the 2019, a lot of Labour voters switching to vote for the SNP to get rid of the Tory incumbent. So you can actually see that playing out anyway in Scotland. Um, certain alignments are happening. In Glasgow, it's actually a very, very close fight between Labour and the SNP in, in many seats. Uh, and often it can be determined simply by turnout on the day. Um, so I think in Scotland it's a bit more complex. We can certainly see certain areas, certainly north of the central belt, where Liberal Democrats might want a, a free run, for example, Ian Blackford's seat, which was Charles Kennedy's old seat. Um, so it might be reasonable for Labour to stand aside and let them have a go at it. Um, whereas in other areas of the country, it might be more reasonable for Labour to not stand a candidate so that um, the second place party has a better chance of knocking the Tory incumbent out. So there could be reasonable arguments on a case-by-case -case basis. But as was mentioned, again, there is a risk that that can be used by the Conservatives to say Labour in an unholy alliance with the SNP to break up the country. So we have to be wary of the potential negative effects of that um, and, and basically have a shrewd approach to dealing with it on a, on a constituency by constituency basis. I think that's true of, of everything that's been said. It's not about, I don't think there's been an argument compellingly against the strategy of it. I think it's been about tactics, about what seats are most appropriate to, to allow you know, the lead candidates go forward. And yes, Labour has came from third place to win seats before, fair enough. But I don't think that's a, a compelling argument against the principle of, of the idea of having an anti-Tory alliance to beat them. I think what we've seen with Biden in America shows that, you know, it was a very open coalition of people that was built to successfully achieve that anti-Trump vote. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something we could probably learn a lesson from, although obviously it's a different electoral system. Um, David, just I just want to put a couple of uh, questions put by people watching. So Andrew John says perpetual progressive alliance won't work, a one-off democratic alliance, build democracy failing narrative, manifesto for PR and election reform, win, make law, dissolve parliament, run new elections. So it's essentially just saying have an election to get rid of the conservatives and then change the electoral system, then just have another election, which would be obviously on the issues. Although Tadeusz Campbell says why put it, it to PR to a referendum. Why not just pass it in Parliament, given how long it's taken to change the boundaries, a new PR system could take a full term to put into effect. I suppose that would mean candidates saying, if you vote for us, then we're going to introduce proportional representation via Parliament. Um, would be very controversial. The argument would be this is a parliamentary democracy. So basically, David, I mean, that, that, those are the points people are making. Like, what, why not just do it as a one-off, basically, and then have an election, get rid of Conservatives, and then each party would then just stand on their own political merits. Well, part of the reason is, is, is that I don't believe it will even work within those narrow terms because I don't think that um, you know I, I don't think that a PR is an issue that's going to mobilise. You know, I mean, to win an election to get a majority of people in the country, we need uh, even if you include Lib Dems and so on. We need to mobilise people who used to vote Labour but vote Tory now, uh, Labour leavers, uh, people who dropped out of voting, uh, this kind of thing. And I, I don't think that, you know, I, I've seen it said this, the, 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 the phrase like democratic alliance, this idea that like our democracy is uh, failing and that uh, represent, you know, we're unrepresented and so on. Um, frankly, I, I just don't think that that... Um, First, I, I don't think that the idea that democracy is like in, in sort of crisis or in danger has as much purchase. And also, I, I think uh, uh, the the kind of structural barriers to democracy in Britain 
things like um, reforming the media, uh, which Labour spoke a lot about, and Jeremy Corbyn has spoken a lot about the Peace and Justice Project, um, or trade union rights, for instance. Uh, these are things that Lib Dems are never going to vote for. And if we had PR then, uh, and we had to have a perpetual coalition with them, then I don't think that we could uh, do anything there either. I, I think, uh, but you know, I, I just get back to the same point, which is that fundamentally the issue is that the Labour Party is hemorrhaging support. In lots of other countries, we've seen these uh, so-called temporary alliances, like in Italy, we had it loads uh, against uh, against Berlusconi, just get him out and, and this kind of thing. Uh, and then in the end, all that happened is that the left uh, is not allowed to speak, not allowed to say what it thinks, not allowed to challenge uh, the powerful. And uh, you know, one where I certainly disagree with uh, Paul, although I think we have uh, a lot of common ground in some ways, uh, I, I just think it's totally unrealistic to imagine that the Lib Dems are going to support candidates with socialist policies. And uh, in reality, if you look at places like uh, Chessamond, uh, Amersham, or you know, Guildford, uh, Richmond, whatever, if there is a left-wing Labour Party, then people in those areas will not vote for a Lib Dem party allied to the Labour Party. Uh, I think uh, I think the Lib Dems should represent their own politics and their own electorate. And then if Labour don't get a majority, then they can choose to support us or, or not. And in so doing, expose themselves for um, what they are. Um, but I, 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 as I say, I, I think the reality is that Keir Starmer's leadership has completely silenced the left, firstly by pushing the left out of the Labour Party and Cabinet, uh, but also because of the total lack of opposition to uh, the government. The, you know, if we talk about wanting to unite young voters with, with like older homeowners and so on, then you know, why no response to coronavirus? Uh, so, I mean, I think the idea of an electoral pact uniting Keir Starmer and Ed Davey uh, certainly isn't something that, well, it certainly doesn't excite me, but also I don't think it's going to mobilise um, people who've abandoned voting or ditched the Tories. And you know, sometimes it's spoken of in the language of democratic uprising or populism or whatever. Uh, but I think most people will see it as an alliance of parties which are mainly united by the fact that they uh, were for the people's vote before uh, Remain. And I think that that's just not a sufficient basis to construct a, a majority. That was brilliant, both of you. I think we've very, very comprehensively covered a huge amount of ground, but I found that very educational and informative from both of you, very spirited defences of your position. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, thanks, both. This, this conversation, I think, will continue. It's one of these. It comes and goes. But uh, but thanks so much, and uh, enjoy your Sunday, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, nice to see you, Owen. Thanks. Yeah, you too, buddy. See you, David. Um, before I come on to our next fantastic guest, I'm very honoured to have, um, do do download our podcast, uh, the podcast uh, version of this for maybe on your run, maybe just on your little commute for those of you returning to your offices. Uh, but um, you can get that on wherever you get your podcasts, within reason. Um, what we're talking about now is something I something that was very close to my heart and lots of people were very touched and moved and got involved in the campaign. 22-year-old Osim Brown, uh, an autistic man uh, with a reading age of between six and seven, uh, came to this country when he was very young and faced being deported uh, 
to Jamaica, where he has no family, uh, his family are here. Now, this campaign uh, roused a huge number of people in his defence. And before I bring in his mum, Joan, let's hear the Labour MP, Nadia Whittam, in Parliament when she raised this issue. The Secretary of State will be aware that in recent years there's been increased understanding of neurodivergent people and the issues that this presents in the criminal justice system. Yet there are still neurodivergent individuals who face disproportionate prison sentences and in the case of foreign national offenders could risk deportation to a country where they have no support. Will he commit to immediately reviewing all cases of neurodivergent individuals and particularly those who face imminent deportation? Well, I'm very grateful to the Honourable Lady. Uh, she raises an issue that she will probably know is very close to my heart. And in the White Paper, we've announced a call for evidence about neurodivergence within the criminal justice system, because I think that we can do much, much better, not just in terms of understanding and, and making adjustments for people with autism and other, other conditions when they get into the system, but preventing their, them from getting into the system in the first place. Uh, one of the issues I think she raises is, of course, uh, the question of diagnosis many people uh, are not even diagnosed even though they present with these problems. I will look at that matter uh, more closely uh, and, and I'm grateful to her for raising it. So that was a video, as I say, from Nadia Whittam, her speech in Parliament. Let's bring in Joan now. Joan, hello, lovely to see you. Good morning and thank you for having me. It's a huge honour, massive congratulations. It was a brilliant moment when we all heard that your son was not to be deported and a huge, huge relief for you. Uh, your your campaign was was extremely inspiring and, and mobilised lots of people. So you just want to tell us, tell us about your son. Tell us what happened with your son. Yeah. Well, I'll, it's a long catalogue of failing, but I'll just start here. That what happened to a team shows a long history of failings by the various authorities and how they have led to the unjust threat of deportation that was hanging over his head, but now rescinded. Asim faced deportation because he was convicted and imprisoned for a crime that both he and the victim friend said he did not commit. Asim has complex needs, autism, learning disabilities, amongst other, and needed to be dealt with in a timely and sensitive manner. No one wanted to probe into his complexities. And those failings, laziness, shabbiness, and lack of care is what led him into the situation in the first place. Failings of the failings. I would just like to say that early intervention is a must to enable an autistic person like my son to have a chance in life. This was not afforded to a team, yet, all the time I have been crying out to them for years for help for Haseem. Haseem was not accommodated during his time in school where his autistic needs was identified but pushed aside in preference of treating him as a defiant and disruptive black boy. Even though he was evaluated and strongly worded their findings that they believe he was autistic and significantly below his peers cognitively, these findings are all in his school report. However, 
he was, however, he got disciplined, singled out, and called derogatory names if he did not understand what was being asked of him. But he never got the help or support he needed. The social service department and its social worker failed him, firstly by promising a vulnerable minor freedom and you know an autonomy autonomy for the for from the structured and routines that had guided and protected him for the previous 16 years of his life. They took him out of my care and placed him into unstable and unfit conditions, resulting in him being moved from residence to residence in rapid succession, one after the other. Some of these residents are now deemed unfit for purpose and others closed down on the back of, me, of my rapid campaign with them. He was not being cared for, but dumped and isolated and left to fend for himself. This is a whole other story. Mm. The police singling out, singled out the same and manipulated the witnesses. They ignore CCTV evidence. His, the state supplied solicitor took the payment for his service, but did not put any effort into support or help with him. Because he could not process nor respond accordingly to protocol, they compounded his situation by having charges of perverting the course of justice against him. The fact that Osim could be singled out like that just goes to show how wrong the criminal justice process was. That's why we believe it was a miscarriage of justice. Anyone with an understanding of disabilities would know this couldn't be right. The criminal trial took no proper assessment of Asim autism. The jury wasn't given the help it needed to understand his autism. The judge wasn't, and Asim wasn't given the support he should have had through the criminal process. We are also concerned about the role joint enterprise play in his conviction, especially in view of the fact that the victim friend said clearly that Osim did not take the phone, but rather was trying to get them to behave themselves. And that's why we are planning to bring an appeal. Because of the callous and reckless decision made by all these services, my son's life expectancy has been cut significantly. He developed a heart problem from the large doses of psychiatric drugs. 350 milligram of quetiapine was administered to an autistic child who could not say no, but rather complied. Mm. We cannot accept it and move on without accountability. What sort of life will he have? He's just 22 years old. It is unbearable. The mm. prison system treated him like, I would say, number six in the cult series, the prisoner, as if they were trying to break him, which they did. 
I have watched the light goes out of my son. He used to be fun, but now he's like a shadow of what he used to be. So that answers your question. Tell me about the campaign for justice and how it gathered pace. And, you know, whilst these huge stresses were upon you and your son, but tell me about the campaign and, and the, the impact it had and how, how it... How it, how it managed to reach more and more people? Well, I would say we, I have come, we, the family and everyone, we have come to realize that it's not the government that makes this country great, but the many millions of kind and gracious people up and down the country who believe in value, fairness and justice. And this is why we are here today and this is why Asim remain in the only country he has ever known. The supporters heard of his horrendous story and they fought with me to gain victory. People are not fools. They can see through the lies of the broken system. This shows that we are more powerful together than apart. I want to thank um, all the, the the organizations, all the unions, all um, the supporters who have fought, fought with me. I want to thank Emma from AIM. They have she has fought vigorously with me. She heard about a same campaign. She opened a petition, and we are where we had. And the journalists as well. Yourself, AIM Hoen. I want to thank you for coming to my aid to do. Um, a story that people can learn of um, what Osim has been through. I think I've traumatized some of these journal journalists, but it was for a good of my son. That's answer that question. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I was really glad to write about that with with your help, of course, a few months ago. So please, if people want to read more of the story, just search my name and Osim Brown, and you, you'll be able to see more details. Just finally, just two questions. I mean, tell me how you felt when you won. What a moment after all the stress you've gone through. But also, what do you think it means, this victory for other families who are facing similar situations, the threat of deportation? Um, well, firstly, I would say it was not a win for Asim alone. It was a win for all the Asims out there. It was bittersweet. There were a few outbursts, tears, laughter, you know, but I quickly realized that the fight is not over because there are many Asim that are out there and have been failed by this very system. And in so doing, they face a double punishment. People with live experiences need to be listened to and believe nothing without us is for us. We need to have input and for our concerns to be heard and hacked upon. You know, that, and to answer your question about the campaign and families out there, I would say that there is hope and they should persevere, never give up and be strong in their pursuit for justice. It's also show that the Home Office can indeed respond in a just and dynamic way. You know, too many, I would say too many family has been wronged and injured 
sometimes to a point of no return. So in closing, I would like to say to the government, the time is always right to do right. Thank you. Joan, it's such an honour to have had you with us to talk about this. And as I've said, so unbelievably heartening in these not so often pleasant times to see some actual justice. You fought an incredible and very moving and inspiring campaign. And it's brilliant to see this victory. And I hope it will embolden and it will embolden other people who are fighting, the other Asims, fighting for the other Asims out there, as you say. Thank you so much, Joan. It's a real delight to have you. And uh, it was very moving as ever. Thank you. And it was my pleasure to be in here. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there today. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Yeah. Lots of love, Joan. Take care. So before we finish, before I wrap up, it was brilliant to have Joan as ever. So eloquent, so moving, and she fought an incredible campaign. Um, just before we wrap up, oh, so I'm trending again because it's a day ending with why. So this is why I'm trending this time. Um, I went on uh, my good friends at Navarra's show on uh, Friday uh, to discuss the political situation. We spoke about Keir Starmer's leadership. And this has set off a diverse range of people who, some of whom think that I'm responsible for the current plight of the Labour Party. And I'm not doing this to do a bit of me, me, me. I just think this is an important way of just looking very briefly, because we need to go soon, uh, at the delusions about the situation that faces the Labour Party by some of the defenders of the Labour leadership. Let's just see the clip that came out from the show, which set everyone off. If he loses badly and spent, Keir Starmer has to resign as leader of the Labour Party, and the left has to think very seriously about how we get some sort of candidate on the ballot paper in those circumstances. Oppositions do not lose by-elections. That almost never happens. Before Hartlepool, that had happened twice in the last 50 years. You can't double the number of by-elections you have lost or an opposition has lost to the government in the last half century within the space of two months and credibly argue you have any chance whatsoever of staying in power. A big chunk of the right of the Labour Party, I, I think there's good reason to believe, are waiting to see what the result of the Unite General Secretary election is. If Gerard Coyne, the right-wing candidate, wins, that will then be used to clamp down on democracy within the Labour Party and do all sorts of very, very, very terrifying bad things but also to rewrite the leadership rules, probably a reversion to the Electoral College, for example. So you give a massive chunk of the votes weighted in favour of members of parliament. You change the nominations required to get a left-winger on the ballot in the first place, um, and that would stop a left-winger getting on the ballot paper. This is heading for catastrophe for the Labour movement, the Labour Party, and as a consequence, British society. It's not a tenable situation. So, I mean, very, very bad, terrifying things was not my most eloquent turn of phrase. Good job, not a writer. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll just quickly say on this, because I was trending lots of people going, this is why the Labour Party is in it, you know, because of of, of me uh, going on Navarra. I, I, I mean, firstly, I, I've been to Batley and Spen. The documentary's coming out, you'll see. I heard lots of reasons why people weren't voting for the Labour Party. People disillusioned with the Labour leadership over a lot of things, both domestic and foreign. No one was going, do you know what? I was going to vote Labour, but um, I saw that video you did or, or one of your tweets 
has made me decide to vote for the Conservative Party. I mean, let's just live in the real world. It's so delusional. Some, if you go on Twitter, just click, I mean, poor you, click on Owen Jones, the trending topic. If it's still trending, you just type my name in. And so, I mean, people are really angry and abusive, like really like they hate me. I mean, I, I can read through their tweets. I get the gist. They hate me. I get that. Fine. You know, join my exes. Just joking. But all I'd say is just a few very quick things. Labour is in a lot of trouble at the moment. Keir Starmer stood on a platform of retaining the domestic policies of the Corbyn era, combining that with professionalism, party unity, uh, electability. And I said at the beginning, I didn't vote for him, but I said, I wrote a column saying, wishing him on, saying everyone should wish him well. Uh, and, and and of course, you know, I, I support the Labour Party in my life. I voted for under every leader. I've never not voted for the Labour Party in any circumstance, unlike... Alistair Campbell, one of my detractors on Twitter, denouncing me for uh, for not showing sufficient gusto in supporting the Labour Party. That guy was voting for the Liberal Democrats two years ago. No offence, but let's just stick to the facts here. So I, I just think, you know, a, a lack of perspective, I think, has emerged. My own view is if you lose two by-elections, which Labour hold, held those seats in a general election, in a by-election, oppositions are supposed to do better than they do in a general election. Now, we're told a vaccine rollout has destroyed that. So why on earth did the Liberal Democrats win in Cheshire and Amersham then? Well, the vaccine rollout only damages the Liberal Democrats. Have they, Or maybe they've not all been vaccinated properly in Cheshire and Amersham. Obviously, this is ridiculous. And in Batley and Spen... If Labour are struggling, which they are, I've been there and I've spoke to Labour councillors who are frankly despondent on the ground. If you lose Hartlepool and then you lose, and both of these seats were kept by Jeremy Corbyn in both by-elections, sorry, both general elections. In 2017, 2017, just four years ago, over half the electorate in those constituencies, both of them voted for the Labour Party. Labour had a thumping majority then. It diminished in 2019, but they were still majorities that Labour should keep in a by-election because by-elections are where you're more likely to get the opposition doing well. Now, people say, oh, you didn't hold this standard to Jamie Corbyn. Well, actually, I did, actually. In fact, arguably a lower, much to the chagrin, there's still people angry at me over this because I voted for Jamie Corbyn to be twice, campaigned for him to be leader. And then what happened in... 2017, in March, in Copeland, uh, Labour lost that by-election. Now, as it so happens, Jeremy Corbyn actually won his first by-elections. In fact, Oldham West and Royton, uh, a few months after he became leader, Labour increased its majority. And I said at the time, I think he should resign. So, I, you know, with, with Keir Starmer, I'm waiting for two by-elections rather than one. And actually, people then go, well, you regretted saying that. Well, yeah, because there was a general election in which Labour added 30 seats which disproved my thesis. People might argue, well, the same could happen again. Well, the difference is Jeremy Corbyn's success in 2017 was down to the fact there was a policy policy prospectus that cut through, which resonated with people, uh, and he was a very good campaigner, and Theresa May was a bad campaigner. Uh, that's not going to be the case with Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. There's no policies that are going to come out of his sleeves, which are suddenly going to wow the electorate. There's a dirt, there was no vision coming out of the Labour Party. That's why they're struggling. I mean, no one knows what they stand for. If you go around the streets of this country, the problem is people don't think the Labour Party stands for anything anymore. That's not my tweets responsible. It's not my videos responsible for that. That's the Labour leadership. And I'm afraid to say they've let the government get away with 150,000 deaths of people sent prematurely to their graves because of one of the most catastrophic handlings of, of COVID on the face of the earth. 
Donald Trump was an incumbent during the pandemic. He lost the election. So why on earth are Labour struggling? Because they failed to put an alternative narrative about how the pandemic could have been handled differently and what they would have done instead and presented a bold, optimistic vision of life after the national emergency like they did in World War II. Now, people have to get real. The Labour leadership is not fulfilling its promises that it kept, it, that it made in the Labour leadership election. And it's struggling because of its mistakes. Not people in the Labour Party. Keir Starmer got an easy ride from the media and the vast majority of Labour MPs have backed him. That's not the same as Jamie Corbyn, who got every single day a vicious media campaign and most Labour MPs trying to get rid of him. And Keir Starmer now has worse ratings than Jamie Corbyn did at the same point, despite the fact the media aren't calling him Osama bin Laden's love child going on holiday with the head of Al-Qaeda or whatever uh, in Butlins, uh, who's going to nationalise everyone's mothers, whilst most Labour MPs are trying to get him. Just be serious. You're not being serious if you think anything other than what you think. So I've had my rant. It is annoying just because I kind of look at half this and just think, it's not about me. I mean, a lot of these people, these strangers who decided I'm an evil, terrible person because they don't like an opinion I express in good faith. But the fact is, it's deflection. A lot of these people thought the Keir Starmer would come in, the grown-ups are back in the room, their predecessors were so, so self-evidently incompetent and shambolic that he'd waltz in and everything would be fine. And it hasn't happened. It hasn't worked. Those people feel understandably very, very embarrassed and humiliated because everything they argued would happen, didn't happen. And now instead, all they've got left is to claim that people who are left-wing on Twitter are responsible for Labour's problems. I've had my rant. It is annoying. I'm going to finish now because you've all got, we've all got things to do. I've got to finish working with my colleague on the documentary from Batley and Spen, where people are not talking about my tweets. They are talking about all their problems they have with the Labour leadership, which I will honestly talk about in the documentary. Uh, so please do check that out. Uh, if you're supporting us on Patreon, or you're not, please do, because that's what allows those documentaries to happen. We've got loads of them coming up, patreon.com forward slash ownjose84. Um, please like the videos. I'm just going to quickly, before my producer kills me, thank all the Super Chats who supported us today. Bradley Hillier-Smith, Chris Jarvis, Andrew Johns, Tajus Cantwell. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks so much for the guests. Lots of love, everyone, and I will see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.